I want to introduce you this morning to a friend of mine. His name is uh, Jason. And Jason and I have been friends since we were in first grade. And Jason did not grow up, how do I say this, super athletic. He didn't really play sports. Uh, He didn't go out for the football team. But when Jason became a senior in high school, he decided that he wanted to start going out for track. And I'm not sure how things work in track. I played baseball. We made fun of track kids. And so so Jason went for track, and somehow he decided he wanted to start jumping over hurdles. And if you know about hurdles, you know there's the 440 hurdles that are the half hurdles, and then there's the 110 hurdles that are the full hurdles. Jason started practicing with the 440s. Apparently, he was pretty good. And so they put him in the hurdle race in a large meet in Bullhead City, Arizona, during our senior year of high school. And uh, it was his first hurdle race, but it was over the 110 hurdles, which are the full hurdles, which Jason had never run before in his entire life. And so Jason started this hurdle race, and he was doing pretty well. I mean, he cleared the first hurdle, he cleared the second hurdle, he cleared the third hurdle, he kind of hit his foot going over the fourth hurdle, and then that fifth hurdle, I mean, he just went face planted right there on the track. And if you've ever watched the hurdle race, it's all about momentum. And he had none. So he went over the sixth hurdle. And then the seventh hurdle. By this point in the hurdle race, the entire 3,000 student meet has stopped. And everyone is watching Jason. His grandpa, who I knew at this point, closed the video camera and started deleting the footage. So I can't show you the video today. It's not on YouTube. And Jason continued to fall flat on his face and flat on his face, and then over the 10th one, flat on his face. And he sprawled out on the track, and as the story goes, as the legend goes, uh, a little old lady leaned down at him while he's laying there bloodied, and she gets down and she says, it's okay, honey, you can do it. And Jason got up and he walked across the, the finish line that day. And I have to tell you, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have Snapchat, but the only thing we talked about for the rest of the year was Jason's hurdle race. It was a memorable moment, and it was also his last hurdle race. And whenever he hears me tell this story, he sends me a message on Facebook and says, Scott, you got to let it go. And I said, I can't. It's just too good. I mean, in the same track meet, one of the girls on our team ran the third fastest mile time in the nation. No one talked about Nikki Peterson that day. It was all about Jason. And the thing is, I think a lot of us feel like my friend Jason. Life has not gone the way that we planned. We've been through some bloody knee moments. We've endured some difficult days. We've fallen flat on our face at times. A few years ago, I heard a sermon about King David. If you're unfamiliar with King David, uh, in the Bible, the story is told about a young shepherd boy who at 16 gets anointed as king. And when, when David is anointed as king, King Saul is still on the throne. And let's just say Saul's not one to give up his power very easily. And so Saul uh, tries to kill David. And so for 20 years, David is on the run. And then finally, at age 37, 20 years later, Saul dies in battle, and David is inaugurated as king. And in this sermon on David, the pastor who was speaking, Stephen Furtick, said this. He said, between the promise and the payoff is a process. He said, in David's life, there was a promise. You're going to be king one day. 
The payoff was, you're actually king, and in the middle of that 20 years, there was a process. And I think a lot of us live this quote on a daily basis. We had some sense in our life of what God was going to do, and we're living in the middle waiting for God to complete that work. We're living in the process. We're living in the middle. Some of us are like my friend Jason, and the middle is sprawled out on the track, bloodied knees, everyone watching us have our worst moments. See, I think we live most of our lives in the middle. We, we live between a goal that we set and achieving that goal. We live between the first day of class and graduation, the birth of our kids, and then finally moving out of our house at 29 between a job that pays the bills and a career that actually fulfills us where we look forward to Monday morning, between where we are and the retirement we dream of enjoying. In our faith, we even live between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, between the death of our idealism and the resurrection of our hope. We're living right now between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming. We're living between our baptism and becoming like Christ. See, Paul was concerned about his friends who were living in the middle. And he wrote the book that we've been studying for the last nine or ten weeks to help them continue to move forward. I hope you've been encouraged by this study of Philippians like I have. I hope God has used this to remind you of your hope that even when you're stuck in the middle, God is not done with you and he's doing a great work. This morning, I want to speak to us about how we live life in the middle, and my central idea is this, that our vision of the end reframes life in the middle. If you're living in the middle of something today that you didn't plan for or expect, if you're living in the middle of something that is frankly difficult for you to swallow, if you're looking forward to a moment in the past that hasn't yet come yet, you're living in the middle. And my prayer is that this morning you would gain a vision of what God is going to do in the end and it would reframe and re-engage you as you live life in the middle. Now that phrase, our vision of the end, it, it deserves some explanation. See, our hope as followers of Jesus is rooted in that bread and juice we just took. That Jesus was born of a virgin, we'll celebrate that in way too soon, I'm not going to talk about that yet, but we'll celebrate really soon, the birth of Jesus, he lived a perfect sinless life, he died a death on the cross that he didn't deserve, he was resurrected from the dead, Second Corinthians says that that resurrection is not something we can experience, that in Christ we are new creations, we saw that last week in four baptisms out on the patio. It says in the scriptures that we get new bodies, which many of you are super excited about because you're becoming more metal than human. That's cool. So you're going to get a new body. It's a body that Christ had. I think it's a pretty cool body. He enjoyed fish tacos on the beach and could walk through walls. I want that better than my iPhone, but one day we'll get that. And then Jesus promises to restore all things. Contrary to popular opinion, the end that is our vision is not that the earth is one day going to burn and we're just passing through. No, Revelation 21.5, my favorite verse in the whole book of Revelation, if you're wondering, Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. Write these words down for they are trustworthy and true. 
So everything that you see in all of creation will one day be restored and redeemed. And that's our vision of the end. So if you're living in a world that's broken, that isn't as it should be, where things are frustrating and difficult, and you wish we would finally get there, Jesus promises that one day he will come and make all things new. And that vision of the end should reframe how we live life today. And so we're going to explore what that means in really practical ways in the book of Philippians. So if you have a copy of the Bible, either a physical one or a digital one, would you open it up to Philippians chapter 3? We're going to start reading in verse 12 this morning. And again, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Philippians is about 90% of the way through the Bible. It's a a letter that was originally written about 2,000 years ago to a group of people in northern Greece by a man named Paul who was in prison. And he was concerned about his friends. He'd heard about them through a man named Epaphroditus. And he wrote this letter, possibly he thought maybe the last time he talked to his friends. And beginning in verse 12, this is what Paul says. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This morning, I want to help answer the question, how do we reframe life in the middle? And I've got four thoughts for you. The first way that we reframe life in the middle is that we live today in light of the future, not the past. We live today in light of the future, not the past. See, Paul, if anybody had a reason to talk about his past, it's Paul, because he's literally in prison on death row. There's more of his life behind him than in front of him. There's more accomplishments behind him than in front of him. But he says, I'm not looking back, I'm looking forward. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, not that I've considered it my own. No, I forget what lies behind. Last week, I talked about the fact that all of us have a list of things running in our head that we feel like are our accomplishments. There are resume, there are lists of good deeds that, that make us a good person, that make us a spiritual person that we feel proud of. And while on that list are a lot of good things, I mean, you're here today. Some of you are going to give in the offering. You know, some of you are going to serve the next hour with preschoolers or children. Some of you hosted a group in your home this week. Some of you served somebody in your community. Some of you gave of your time or your money so somebody could experience a different kind of life. Some of you have done incredible things in your week. But what Paul says is all of the good things that we have done are nothing compared to what Jesus has done for us. And so Paul says, I'm not going to live in light of the things I've done. I'm going to live in light of the future, which is me pursuing Jesus Christ and the calling he's put on my life. And Paul's using an analogy in his world that we know a little bit about. He's using the language of the Olympics. See, we didn't invent the Olympics. Michael Phelps isn't really the greatest Olympian ever that we know of because we don't know what happened before there was Google. But in the ancient world of Greece, where Philippi was, the Olympics were a significant thing. And if you won an event in the Olympics, you were on par with, I guess, how we would consider like the Kardashians. You were uber popular. And, And Paul says, like an Olympian, I forget what lies behind me in the race, And I strain forward to what lies ahead of me 
in the race. And again, Paul has done incredible things. And for all he knows, his life is just days away from being taken. And he says, I'm going to live today in light of the future, not the past. I think that should be hugely convicting for us because some of us are constantly stuck in the past. No matter if we're young or old, we get caught up in the past. And here's the tragedy. Your past becomes a liability when your focus is no longer in the future. Your past becomes a liability when your focus is no longer in the future. For some of us, the difficulty is we've done a lot of good things in our past, and we tend to live there with nostalgia about the good old days when things were better. And when you live in the past, you can't grab a hold of the future. When you live in the past and you're focused back here, God's doing all this amazing stuff right here, but guess what? You can't see it because you're focused on the past. You know, and that's a struggle that I'm facing today because I did some incredible things and I was a part of some incredible things in Phoenix. But guess what? That's over. I'm not there anymore. God called me here. And so I'm having to let those things go and plant myself here. Some of you know this. You moved to Prescott from somewhere and God's called you here. It's great that you had great things happen there, but God is moving here. And if you're obsessed about there and then, you can't see him moving here and now. Others of you, the struggle is you have some dark days in your past. You've made some big mistakes that you wish you could forget. But you're not letting go of them. You're not forgiving yourself. For some of us, the worst, most negative voice is the one in our head. For some of us, the voice in our head, if it was a friend of yours, you'd defriend them on Facebook or at least block them for a while. And because you're so focused on the ways that you failed in the past, you can't see how God wants to use you in the future. And it's a liability. You have to let go of it. Paul says, forget what's behind and strain forward to what's ahead. Live today in light of the future. I've got a question for you. Are you living more from memory or imagination? Are you living your life today more from memory or imagination? Some of us are living the way we drive. How many of you have this experience? You get in your car, you drive somewhere, you get there, and you don't remember any of the turns. You go, I think I made four left turns, but I don't remember them. You just drive by memory. Some of you, that's how you live. You don't remember half of last week. Why? Because you did it on autopilot. You do the same thing every week, every day, go through the motions. There's no imagination. There's no creativity. There's no asking God what to do. You just follow the same things like a robot. And, and Paul is saying, no, live in light of what God is going to do in the future, and God is always going to surprise you. He's always going to lead you into a place where things are new and uncomfortable, and you have to depend on him. The one thing I know about God is that he never does the same thing twice. He's always surprising us. He's always challenging us. And so if Paul is a model for us, and I think he is, 
that not only do we need to forget what's behind and strain forward toward what's ahead, we need to accept the fact that we are not perfect and we haven't arrived. None of us. Sadly, the church has made maturity about two things, age and knowledge. So if you've been around for a while and you know a lot of the Bible, you're mature. Well, guess what? The Pharisees fit that bill. No, maturity is about this view that says, I'm going to forget what's behind and strain forward to what lies ahead and press on to what God is calling me to. So I've got a little thing I want you to repeat with me. I'm going to ask you to repeat these words with me line by line, and hopefully you'll mean it. Here's the first one. I haven't arrived. I haven't completely matured. Don't elbow the person next to you on that one. My greatest days are in the future, not my past. Now, if you really mean that, can we say it again? Um, I haven't arrived. I haven't completely matured. My greatest days are in the future, not my past. And if that doesn't give you hope, I hope that messes with you all week. Because this is hopeful. It's not depressing. It's hopeful. I haven't arrived. God has more that he wants to do in me. I haven't completely matured. God's at work and he's going to continue to be at work. My greatest days are in the future. That's awesome. It's not a depressing thought. It's hopeful. And what Paul is saying is if you're not dead, God's not done. If you're not dead, God is not done with you. And so Paul on death row is saying, I'm not dead, so God keep using me and working in me and allowing me to be your conduit. That's just point one, so I need to keep going. Let's go to verse 17. Paul says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The second way we live life in the middle is we need to be worthy of imitation. Paul says, be worthy of imitation. This is a challenging idea for us, but what Paul is saying is he's saying, you should follow me as I follow Jesus. He's saying, don't follow people who are puffed up. Don't follow people who think they've arrived, who think they're completely immature, who think their best days are in the past. No, follow those of us who know we haven't arrived, that we're not completely mature, and that God is still at work question for you. What would happen if someone imitated you? What would happen if somebody imitated you? Here's a little secret. They already are. If if you're a child and you've got younger siblings, they're imitating you. If you're a dad or a mom and you've got sons or daughters, they're already imitating you. If you work in a job and you have any seniority, the newbies are imitating you. If you're a teacher or a coach or a mentor, they're imitating you. What are they imitating? See, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, the scariest verse in the Bible to me, be imitators of me as I am Christ. I think we all should be able to claim this. 
because I don't think Paul is any more special than any of us. And he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Here's the thing, guys. If you're following Jesus, if you're forgetting what's behind and reaching towards what's ahead, if God has called you and saved you and redeemed you, he's transforming you, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in you, and you're following Jesus on a daily basis, your pursuit of Jesus is worthy of imitation. Pursuing Jesus is worthy of imitation. People should be imitating you if you're following Jesus because following Jesus is worthy of imitation. And it may scare you and terrify you to think somebody's imitating you. Good. Because that's where we're supposed to live. Dependent on the spirit within us because we know that we're having influence. See, it's not enough to just teach other people and tell them what to do. They're going to catch more by watching you than by what you say. So every day, Paul says, be worthy of imitation, be worthy of other people following your ways. He continues in verse 18. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The third way that we live life in the middle is we don't get distracted by this world. Paul says, don't get distracted by this world. Paul talks about focus here, that it's incredibly important that we focus on what God is calling us to and we ignore things. And three things he brings up here that I think we struggle with today, even though we're 2,000 years removed from this passage. The first thing he brings up is desire. He says, their end is destruction and their God is their belly. Some of us are driven by our desires. They, they, they move us to do destructive things. Some of us have desires within us that are God-given, but they are now the God that is driving us. Whether that's power or money or popularity or sex, those desires convince us that if we just get a little bit more, we'll be satisfied. I don't know about you, but I have a desire for food and it grows stronger the longer I preach today. I had breakfast and it was good, but I'm going to be hungry for lunch. And no matter how much I gorge myself, I'm going to be hungry for dinner and tomorrow for breakfast and for lunch and as it goes. And if it's food or sex or popularity or power or money or prestige or stuff, more is a mirage. You will get it and you will still be hungry. And so Paul says, don't get distracted. He says, there are those who glory in their shame, who who are doing shameful things and yet they're proud of it. And in no place do we see this better than social media. On a weekly basis, I have a moment where one of my friends, and I'm using bunny quotes now, one of my friends does something and I go, what on earth were you thinking? And why on earth did you share that? Because here's the thing, guys, the internet is a tattoo. Nothing ever goes away. 
even Snapchat. And if they can hack Hillary servers, I promise you, they can get to yours. A day is coming where every text message and email and post you've ever sent is going to be public. And some of you just took a big gulp. See, here's the thing. We now have the potential to share things before we can ask, should I share it? We now have the potential to say things before we can say, should I say that? And so many of us are glorying in shameful things. We're sharing things that we should be ashamed of, and instead, we're looking for people to like it. And if you're under 35, I'm telling you, when you apply for a job, they are not looking at your resume first. They are Googling you. And it doesn't matter how good your cover letter is. If your Facebook feed is terrible, you're not going to get the gig. He says they glory in their shame. Finally, he says their mind is set on earthly things. One of the saddest interviews I ever saw was two years ago before the Patriots played in the Super Bowl against the Seahawks. Tom Brady was interviewed, and he was asked about all of his achievements. I mean, he's won Super Bowls and MVP trophies, and he's arguably one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history. And he said something that just has stuck with me for years now. He said, I don't know where any of my trophies are. They're not up, not up anywhere in my house. My wife has them in a box somewhere. They don't mean anything. And then they started talking about the game, the Super Bowl. And he says, I want to win. He goes, well, don't you already have three Super Bowls? He's like, yeah, but I want one more. And he said, how many is going to be enough? And Tom said, one more than I already have. That's achievement. And when we set our mind on earthly things, we pursue one more, and one more never satisfies us, and it distracts us. Paul says, don't get distracted by earthly things. He concludes with this final statement in verse 20 and 21. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And what you got to understand here is that this passage was not written to a first was written to a first century audience, not a 21st century audience. So the fourth way that we, we reframe life in the middle is we need to reconsider our view of heaven in this world. We need to reconsider our view of heaven in this world, and we need to begin thinking like a first century person would have thought. You see, Philippi, as I told you, is a city in northern Greece, and Philippi was created at the end of a war. There were two generals. One was named Mark Anthony, not the one who dated J-Lo. This is a different Mark Anthony. So Mark Anthony and then the man who would become Caesar Augustus. They won this war, and they had all these soldiers in northern Greece. And they said, we can't take them back to Rome because they're just going to make another war in Rome. We've got to leave them here. And so they built a city called Philippi. And as you can see on the map, it's a fair distance away said to all the soldiers, you are now officially all citizens of Rome, even though you're not living in Rome. You're living in Philippi. And your goal is to make Philippi as much like Rome as possible. Make it a little Rome. And as you live here as citizens of Rome, if anything happens, 
If Attila the Hun or any of the barbarians come and try to attack you, all you have to do is send word to Rome and Caesar will come and he will defend you. And the reason why is that the people and Caesar had this agreement. Caesar promised that he would look after and protect everyone in the empire if everyone got down on one knee and said, Caesar is Lord and Savior. Because Caesar just wasn't an emperor. He was God on earth. And so if you were a citizen of Philippi and you were living in Philippi as a citizen of Philippi in Rome and a conquering empire came against you, you would send word to Rome for Caesar for him to come and save you and he would come from Rome and restore order. What does Philippians 3.20 say? Can we go back to that for a second on the screen? Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, not Rome. It's in heaven. And from heaven, not Rome, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Changes how you see that passage when you begin to think like a first century person. See, Paul is speaking to these believers and he's saying, guys, you're not citizens of Rome primarily, you're citizens of heaven. And you don't have a savior and a Lord in Caesar, you have one in Jesus Christ. And he will come one day to restore all things and he will come to rescue and redeem you. See, heaven isn't just a place that we go to one day, it's a place we live in light of today as we live in this world. And we have to remind ourselves in America today that we are citizens of heaven long before we're citizens of America. And our Savior and Lord is not the person we're going to elect on Tuesday. He's the one who died 2,000 years ago. And we must look to him. One of the reasons you don't see an American flag on this stage is because if, if we put an American flag on this stage, by law, it would have to hold the highest place of honor. And as long as I'm your pastor, nothing is going to have the highest place of honor in this church other than Jesus. Nothing. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and our king is on the throne and he will reign And even if things get darker, we have an example in Paul of one who was persecuted and killed for his faith and yet remained a person of hope. So what do we do? Well, Jesus gives us encouragement. He says this in John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's our hope. This morning, my dad is here with my mom to celebrate in the installation service tonight. And one of my dad's favorite heroes of all time is a man named Jim Elliott. He was a missionary to the Aka Indians in South America, and he lost his life sharing the gospel. My dad taught me the words of Jim Elliott when I was a young boy, and I haven't forgotten. Sadly, I've fought, forgotten a lot of his sermons over the years because I slept through a lot of them when I was a little boy, just being real. And, uh, and yet Jim said these words, and they still stick with me today. Jim said this, he said, wherever you are, be all there. 
live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. I believe wherever you are today is the place where God has put you. And he wants you to be all there. And he wants to use you as a citizen of his kingdom and as a person of hope to do his work. In your bulletin this morning, there's a little card in the back. It's got a bullseye on it. I'd encourage everybody to pull it out right now. If you're watching online, we'll have this on Facebook later today. You can download it. This little card has a bullseye on it. It just has some simple words. It says, the action is right here. I'm going to ask the band to come up right now. They're going to lead us in our final song in a moment. But what I want you to do with this card is I want you to think about where is it that it is most hard for you to be all there? Is it in your job? Is it in your family? Is it in your home? Is it in your car as you drive? Where is it hardest for you to be all there? And this week what I want you to do is I want you to take this card and I want you to put it wherever it's hard for you to be all there. Maybe you put it up in your cubicle. Maybe you put it up on the mirror in your bathroom. Maybe, maybe you put it up in the kitchen. Maybe you put it next to your speedometer. Don't cover your speedometer. Put it next to your speedometer. <laughs> and remind yourself that the action is right here. This is where God has put you, and this is where he wants to use you. I'd encourage you to take a picture of it and share it online and tag Cornerstone or me. Put the hashtag hope dealers on there. Talk about what it is that you're doing. Jesus never promised us that the times that we live in would be easy. But he promised us that he had overcome the world and that he could use us in any circumstances. And I truly believe that each of you have been placed where you are because that's where God wants you. And you're to be all there. And as long as you're there, let God use you as much as he can because I truly believe that the action in God's kingdom is there. And my prayer this whole week has been that some of you would see with fresh eyes where you're living in the middle and that that new perspective would give you hope. Why don't you stand as the band leads us today. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.